1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, that if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but... If she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving Husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as, this, as they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord.
If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desires under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, when we turn to our Bibles to see what it teaches us about being single, the category isn't as clear as we make it. There would seem to be three groups that can be mentioned here. The unmarried, the widows and the virgins. Each of these is in 1 Corinthians 7. The unmarried are mentioned in verse 8 and verse 11, where they're linked with the widows, and the discussion there concerns marriage and separation. And likewise, down at the end of the chapter, verses 32 and 34, where they are linked with virgins and getting married. The widows are mentioned in verse 8, linked with the unmarried and discussing remarriage. And then they're discussed right in the last two verses, 39 and 40, although the word widow is not used there. The virgins are only mentioned in the last third of the chapter, and they're always translated by the ESV as betrothed. But there's no reason for them to be translated betrothed. The word is virgin. There's a Greek word for virgin, and this is the word. It's virgin. And that's the word that should be used, as far as I can see. And that occurs in verse 25, 34, 36, 37, 38. It's about the virgins. There seems to be a transition in this chapter. From Paul's answer to the Corinthians' first question in verse 1, it's good for a man to not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, the matters that you've written, there's the first question through a discourse in verses 17 to 24 about contentment and then to answer the second question of the Corinthians in verse 25, now concerning the virgins. I have no command from the Lord. The virgins only occur in this last section which is discussing marriage, whether to or not to get married. While the first section is discussing sex and sexual immorality and self-control inside marriage and outside marriage. Uh, from our point of view then, when we talk of singleness, we need to recognise the different kinds of singlenesses there are and that are on view in our lives and within the scriptures, for there's different reasons for being single. For while the widow, the divorcee, the virgin are all single, that is, not married, their circumstances of life are quite different. Jesus spoke of another group of singles that are not here, the eunuchs. A group of singles, mercifully not common today, castrated men, uh, he spoke of them both literally and metaphorically when he wrote, uh, when he said in uh, Matthew 19, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, each of these men were the same. They were all eunuchs. But each were completely different because of why they were eunuchs, how they came to be castrated like this. And even widows differ according to their age and sexual activity. The widow is completely free to remarry only in the Lord, though in verse 8 they're told they should marry. And in verse 39 they're told they'd be happier if they didn't marry. The difference is the difference of the sexual issue in verse 9 
where Paul is dealing with widows who are not exercising self-control. At this point, the translation, the ESV, and nearly all the other translations are frankly wrong. Uh, our modern translators are desperate to tell us what the Bible means instead of telling us what the Bible says. Uh, I wish they'd stick with what it says rather than what it means because they don't know what it means. What the text is saying is, but if they are not exercising self-control, they should marry. There's nothing in the text about if they cannot exercise self-control. It's saying if they are not exercising self-control. That is, here is a widow who has been converted and she is living with another man or she is sleeping around or she is involved in sexual relationships. It's what is happening in the mission field of Corinth that Paul is writing about, not what is theoretically could or couldn't happen. It's not cannot. If they are not exercising self-control, they should marry. For he gives us his reason, it's better to marry than to burn. But it doesn't say then to be aflame with passion. The words with passion are just not in the Greek text anyway. They've just been made up by English translators who are trying to help you understand what the passage is saying and in the process lead to a misunderstanding of what the passage is saying. For the word burn can mean burn with passion, but it also can mean burn in judgment, which is much more likely. It is better to marry than to burn, is what is being said. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better to go into life with one eye than to go into hell with two. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better. This is the area of enormous concern about judgment and condemnation. And so he is saying it's better to marry than to burn. That is what the text is saying. Now, your different translations will have it differently. I haven't gone with every one of them. But that's what the text is saying, irrespective of what your translation. Verse 9 has caused a lot of problems for people, I believe. This then makes sense of also the other widow passage in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul directs that young widows should remarry, bear children and manage their households, for he fears that their passions will draw them away from Christ when they desire to remarry. The young widow is seen to be in spiritual danger from having too much time and energy on her hands if she's provided with a church pension. She'll be led astray to becoming a busybody, a gossip, as well as in the dangers of sexual drives. How sad it is when we do see, and I have, young widows entering into marriage with an unbeliever and taking Christian children into an unbeliever's home because of the desires that are so powerful within her. There are strong issues of, in our sexuality that Paul recognises and saw the need for some people have to normalise our behaviour in holiness by marriage. The widow and the unmarried who are already caught in sexual behaviour are told to marry. Though the older widow, or she who is content with her place in life, content with her place in life, are encouraged to stay single. There's no particular virtue in marriage over and above the virtue of being single. Which brings me to the second point. That is, the grass is green. In 1 Corinthians, verses 17 to 24, stand out as, for many of us, slightly strange. I love it when I see something strange in the Bible because there is nothing ever strange in the Bible. If there's something strange in the Bible, it means that I haven't understood properly. The strange bit is not the Bible, it's my head. Now generally when I'm reading the Bible, I just say yes, 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 and I don't read anything. I'm just saying yes, 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 yes. But when I read it and say, that's not right, now I have a chance to change my mind. Now I'm thinking, now I'm aware there's a problem here. And why, why does he put this paragraph in here? It's got nothing to do with the subject. Well... It has everything to do with the subject. He wasn't an idiot. He knew what he was doing. He wrote it there because that's where it fits. 
And that's what you need, and therefore I haven't understood the passage properly. It's important to see what it's about. For here is a passage, a paragraph, that makes no reference to marriage, no reference to sex, no reference to widows, or anything else that seems to be what the rest of the chapter is about. Here's a paragraph on circumcision and slavery. If it had been removed, you and I most likely wouldn't have missed it. Well, at that point, we've missed the point of the author very significantly. Paul likes to do this in several places, you see. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through to 7, 1 is a little section that seems to have nothing to do with before and after, so that some people actually cut it out. But it actually is the passage that explains the before and after. 1 Corinthians 13 is the same. Paul's not writing about speaking in tongues and prophecy. He's writing about love. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 only make sense if you've got chapter 13. But yet you could take chapter 13 out and most people wouldn't miss it there. They could put it somewhere else, like in a wedding service or somewhere. But <laughs> it actually is about the conflict in Corinth over the use of gifts. It is the passage that explains the rest. Same here. Here is the command of verse 17. Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Rephrased again at the end of the paragraph. So, brothers, verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, he illustrates it with circumcision and slavery, two issues of his day. But it's actually applied to marriage in verses 1 to 16 and to the subject of getting married in verses 25 through to 39. And it's the acceptance of God's sovereignty over your life. Now, God's sovereignty is not the same as fatalism. Fatalism, you've got no choice, no decision, no actions at all. Because you'll see here, you should, if you get the opportunity as a slave, to take your freedom. And remember, for good reasons, Paul actually circumcised Timothy in the book of Acts. But it is the acceptance of God's rule over our life because of the relative unimportance of things like our circumstances, whether we're slaves or whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised. Discontent is deep in the wealthy person's psyche. And the Australian culture, because I don't want to be rude to Singaporeans, is both restless and discontent. Paul is pointing out that it doesn't matter to a Christian whether he's circumcised or not, or whether he's a slave or not. Because the Christian identity and purpose in life is far, far greater than his circumstances in life. We are the Lord's people. Who cares, who cares whether we are one thing or another in this life? If you're the Lord's person, what, what does it matter whether you're a slave or whether you're circumcised, whether you're free or uncircumcised, whether you're a barbarian, a Scythian, a Roman or a Greek, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're old or you're young, whether you're married, widow, single parent, grandparent, it doesn't matter if you're the Lord's person. Being the Lord's person is just so overwhelmingly important compared to any of these other things that these other things don't matter. The th these things, you see, are the things of this world, but our identity, our purpose, our value, our self, we are found elsewhere. We're the citizens of the kingdom of God. Singaporean citizenship is a wonderful thing to have now in this lifetime. And if you can get it and claim it, then do so. And if you can use it, good on you. But it ultimately doesn't matter. For we're committed to a citizenship that is infinitely more important than the citizenship of Singapore. We are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And when our day is done, and we are placed in our box to be taken to the grave 
or to the crematorium. Who cares what citizenship the body is? The only passport that you need to carry in your coffin is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ carved into your very being as a person. That's the only useful passport that you need. I was going to England. I was in a great rush as I tend to be. It was back in the days when travel was rare and so families came to farewell us. Or possibly back in the days when my family cared. And they were all out there. And so I said by all by kissing around as we are wont to do and finally said my goodbyes and went in the doorway where no one but the travelling public could go and doing my waves around the corner finally proceeded to the desk where I uh, handed my, my boarding pass and my uh, passport to the man and the man looked at me and said, Mr Jensen? I said, yes. He said, are you going to London today? I said, yes. And he said, well, you're not going on this passport. It's your wife's. <laughs> Could you know? If I know, what do I have? Go and get your own passport. You can't travel on this one. I like to let you know my wife's passport is useless for me. Useful for her to get around this world, but it's useless. I had to get home, get my own passport, get back in order to catch the plane before it left. I won't tell you the rest of the story. I don't like telling about, about taxi drivers breaking laws, but when you are in the coffin, don't take your wife's passport. Won't get you anywhere. Don't take your own passport. It won't get you any further. Only the passport of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need that booklet which says, this one is mine to get into heaven. That's the only passport that matters, you see. So we have to look at the green, green grass of heavenly home and not worry too much about the green grass growing over the fence here on earth. For our discontent, our envy, our rivalry is usually about the things of this world when they really need to be about the things of the next. As God's people, we're living in this world while we're citizens of the next. And it's here where we hear others saying, well, you just don't know what it's like. And you know, they're right, you don't know what it's like. The married person doesn't know what it's like to be single. The unmarried person doesn't know what it's like to be married. And the widow will tell you that nobody knows what it's like to be a widow. And everybody is right in this regard. I don't know what it's like to be single or to be widowed. I have lots of friends who have told me, but they've only told me different particulars, not the real, not the whole experience. See, I left home as a young man to go to Moore College. In my third year, I left the single quarters to get married. I am that kind of male creature who has never, ever had to fend for himself, publicly or domestically. <laughs> there are 19-year-old students here tonight who will know much more about what it means to live alone than I have the foggiest clue about. And therefore, I have to be very careful to offer advice and wisdom about living as a single person. And not that I'm wholly ignorant of the matter. I've spent a lifetime serving single adults as a minister of the gospel, having worked alongside a large number of single colleagues. And from them, I've learnt lots, especially from one old colleague who died a couple of years ago, the great John Chapman, that some of you would know with fond memory, and who was single and who kept me up to date on a whole host of stuff, including how to raise my children. <laughs> Paul is illustrating with circumcision and slavery. I'm choosing to illustrate it with being a eunuch because in some ways it's closer to our issues where many people who would like to marry are unable to do so. It's not their choice. 
It's the choice, or rather the lack of choice, of other people. And so they feel disappointed, unloved, and negative about life. Yes, it is difficult here, and I presume difficult in this room because you guys know each other, but there are many women here who would like to be married, but the man will not ask them. And there are many men who would like to be married, but they haven't got the courage to ask someone as beautiful as the woman that they would like to. And so we sit in our isolated singleness. I'm just assuming that that's what it's like. <laughs> Nobody has told me. And I bet I'm right. And it's sad and awful. But if that's the situation is, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about these, these things, these, these jealousies that I can be go on? Well, how am I going to be dealing with it? You see, it's tiring for Christians to play the you-don't-know-what-it's-like game. You don't know what it's like to have nobody to come home to. No, but you don't know what it's like to come home to screaming children and an exhausted wife. <laughs> but you don't know what it's like to have nobody to go on holidays with. No, but you don't know what it's like to have only to go to child-friendly holiday places. <laughs> but you don't know what it's like to have nobody to celebrate birthdays with and have to buy your own kitchen stuff because you never had a... a, a a kitchen tea. You have no weddings or anniversaries or Mother's Day or Father's Day. You don't know what it's like to have to sit up all night with a sick child and then go to work the next day and to have to put a children's birthday party and spend the next day cleaning up the mess that a dozen urchins have made in your house. No, but you don't know what it's like to find a flatmate and work out how to live with each other. No, but you don't know what it's like. They never have nice clothes and have nowhere to go and wear them anyway. And so we go on playing this silly game back and forward that if I was, then everything would be wonderful. And as I'm not, nothing works. And you've got it all and I've got it. It's a stupid game, friends. This game of envy, rivalry, discontent, grumbling. The world is a fallen, sinful place. You'll never, always or even ever get what you want. And when you do, you may easily resent having gotten it. We need to be kind and sympathetic and thoughtful people to each other, listening to what the problems are and seeking to help each other with the problems. See, several widows have told me how hard it is to walk into a meeting by themselves and have nobody certain to sit with. Once inside, they usually find their way but outside, walking in, they've found a difficulty. I've even had some to tell me that they've come to the church, parked in the church car park and not been able to get out of the car and have driven home because they just don't know how to walk into a meeting by themselves having had 40 years of walking in with their spouse. It's a real problem they never have occurred to me without being told about it. It's not a very difficult problem to address, is it? It's just a simple matter of remembering them and their need and to make sure that we meet them outside and bring them in and that we offer them a lift and that we sit with them. It's not a very difficult issue to deal with, provided you love the other person enough to be bothered to hear what their problems are and to take action. Identify the problem, deal with it. But don't go on grumbling in disconsent. Oh, it's not fair, it's not fair. Nobody said it would be fair outside the Garden of Eden. It's never going to be fair outside the Garden of Eden. This is where we live, in a fallen world. Furthermore, it comes close to rejecting the sovereignty of God over our lives. We've been created in God's image. We expect to control things, but of course we can never control things without God. As the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labour in vain. 
we have to come to terms with the fact that most things are well and truly beyond our control. We also have to come to terms with the fact that our loving Heavenly Father is working in everything for our good. I may not have wanted to be born a eunuch or to have other men make me a eunuch, but if that's my Heavenly Father's choice for me, though it's not my choice, Though it's part of the fallenness and sinfulness of the world, yet my father knows best and I'll make the most of the situation that God has placed me in. You see why I'm using the eunuch? Because in some ways it is closer to our issues. It's the one that Jesus uses. It's not their choice, but the choice that is given to them. And so many of our friends who wish to be married, it's not their choice. But you have to deal with the circumstances of life that you have. It's sad and it's awful, the situation. But what are you going to do about it? See, I know some people who have acted. I know one woman who went online and found a Christian husband. For various reasons not the least that she was an unmarried mother, most of the men of the church weren't willing to look at her. But online she found a lovely Christian man who was kind and caring and provided for her a husband and a father for her child and further children that they've had together. I'm not advocating going online. I think there are terrific dangers in the present website situation and it makes me worried that people are in such poor relational contexts that they have to use electronic means to do it. But I know a couple of men who went from Australia to the Philippines and answered newspaper advertisements in the Philippines and took to themselves wives by arrangement there and have brought their wives and then their families out to Australia as part of the arrangement and the deal. It was a, a business deal. But a business deal as Christian people where both parties have honoured their undertakings to each other and have happily resolved their needs through marriage. Again, I'm not commending that it to be done, but here is a situation. Some people I know deal with it, with whatever they can. Other people I know have just accepted it. They've made a life for themselves without marriage. Lovely businessman I knew in England who was single um, and couldn't marry for various reasons. He used his lifetime to make money, considerable money, fabulous amounts of money all of which he ploughed into Christian causes. He wasn't never lived himself, lived, drove an old battered up car, uh, beaten up old Vauxhall Velox thing that was awful, because he wasn't interested in money for himself at all. But he had no family responsibilities, and so he made money for Christian causes. I, I know of people who have made life without children, a lady I know who's a terrible process of the first child, lost the first child and lost her ability to have children, spent her lifetime running the children's programs in the suburb in which I used to minister. And for generations of children knew her because she taught scriptures in the schools and she ran the children's clubs and she taught Sunday school and she was the centre of the children of that suburb, known by every child. But it came through not having her own and not being able to have her own. I know some who faced with these situations of life have grumbled and complained, neither actively resolving the issue nor accepting the reality and making something of it. Now there we are, you see, you can do something, you can accept it or you can grumble. I feel for all three in their predicament, but I'm sure the last option's the worst. I'm sure that's the one that is unhelpful to you and ungodly and a pain in the neck for everybody else.
So let me talk about the other two options under point three, creation and the kingdom. For while most of our disappointments we put down to the fall, in fact there is another aspect that I'm not sure we factor into our thinking sufficiently. Marriage is part of the creation. Genesis 1, God made us male and female together as humanity. We would multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's in that context that the description of the creation of the woman takes place in chapter 2. The man can't be united to any of the animals, but only bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and his union with her is a family union, leaving parents to cleave to her. Not surprisingly, the judgment upon her in chapter 3 falls on her relationships with her husband and with her reproduction of children. And his falls upon him in his work as a gardener. That is, the unity of humanity in reproduction to multiply, fill the earth, lies in the centre of the marriages within the scriptures. Now this is picked up in Malachi 2, right towards the end of the Old Testament, where we read, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Uh, it's a difficult passage and the ESV is quite different in translations to some of the others, but it's basically correct. You see again the idea of unity being linked to reproduction. You see the creation of marriage linked in purpose of reproduction. And I'm afraid that we have moved far too far in our understanding of marriage away from reproduction towards psychological intimacy as an antidote for loneliness. Looking for a spouse who will meet all our psychological, emotional, personal needs for affection and intimacy of soul and body. Little wonder we find marriage disappointing. Little wonder that the homosexual community wants to be married. See, a year or two, a few years ago now, uh, a book was published from Cambridge University of Professor Simon Sretter and Kate Fisher and their study was called Sex Before the Sexual Revolution 1918-1963. It was an oral history of these two British uh, academics as they talked to couples across uh, Britain from different social stratas of the period, old couples, that was done in the 1990s, of people who were the 20th century people, all the people I'd interview would be dead by now. They were old people who talked about their sex life before the 1960s, before the sexual revolution took place. And it shifted the researchers themselves in their expectations because what they expected the old people to say didn't fit in with the history of sex, as was expected. It's interesting to see how the old people saw sex as something private, something just between the couple after marriage. No discussions beforehand, and they were glad there were no discussions beforehand. They didn't like the whole concept of being educated in sex prior to marriage because there was no reason to be educated in something you weren't going to be involved in. But more interesting is their view of marriage itself. It was much more public We've reversed everything, you see. Our sex lives are now all public and our marriage is private. We just slink off and live with the person. Whereas theirs was the reverse, you see. The marriage was very public and then you slunk off and had sex with a person. Privately. But it's not just it was more public. Marriage to them was social and functional, much more than ours. It's what you did as a responsible adult. It's what you did when you grew up. You had a family. The spouse was not chosen for romantic reasons, but for practical reasons in having a family, in running a household. We knew her, we knew him, they grew up just around the corner, we knew their family, they knew our family, they came from good families, and being the early 20th century England, uh, she was really a very good wife because she did her own sewing, she could mend her own clothes, and she was a good cook. He was really good because he had a steady job and he kept himself clean. That was the sign. It had nothing to do with tall, dark, handsome, beautiful, buxom or anything else. It had to do with just sheer practicalities 
of this would make for a good person to raise my family with. When asked about Hollywood romances, they laughed at the silliness of people falling in love and basing their marriage and happy ever after on that. They just thought it was ridiculous. It's interesting, you see, the shift that has happened. It's run a little bit like this, and this is my summary of the book, not the book saying it at all. <laughs> We've moved from their concept. I've become an adult, therefore I should now take responsibility for having a family, and therefore I need to get married, have sex, in order to have the children. That was their concept. But in the middle of the 20th century, under the influence of Hollywood, it was changed. We have a romance, and as a result of a romance, we get married. As a result of getting married, you have sex, and well, if you're doing that, you'll have children and have a family. See the shift in the way in which you approach and think about what is happening. But then what happened with the 60s sexual revolution was that you had romance and therefore you had sex. And so you then moved into a de facto relationship, uh, living together, from which when you reach the point of having children, you say, well, we better get legally married, de jure marriage, and that, of course, led to divorce. But that, of course, is not where it's at today. When you move into the 21st century, we've shifted a little further. You watch pornography, as a result of which you have sex, as a result of which you have de facto relationship, and you go and buy a dog. <laughs> because you never have children, because you're not interested in children, they'd interfere with your sex life. And one of the good things about dogs, Australians have discovered, is that when you go overseas to England for a year or two, you're allowed to put them down, which they won't let you do with children. So, much better to have a dog, doesn't interfere with your lifestyle to have a dog. I've even had people talking to me, um, people my age, talking to me about the fact they don't have any children, but they do have two grand dogs. <laughs> there is the shift, you see, that has happened through the 20th century. It's an extraordinary shift, but it's one that I'm old enough to testify is actually what has happened in the Australian culture. Now, the Singaporean culture, it seems to me, as I've looked through statistics over the last week or so, is heading in the same direction as the Australian culture. You are about as far behind us as we are behind America. So when you look at the numbers of people, percentage of people who are living alone, your percentages are increasing just as ours have increased. You haven't got as many people living alone as we have, but then neither of us have got as many as the Americans have got who are heading in that direction much earlier. Your divorce rate is not as high as our divorce rate, and our divorce rate is not as high as the American divorce rate, but we're all heading in the same direction. It's just a sliding along. I'm only saying, I, you know, I Google, you Google, he and she and it Googles, we all Google, and so that's what I found out about Googling in terms of your government's views on your divorce rates and the like. Let's return. Return to creation's view of marriage about children and reproduction. That is, marriage isn't the end point of our existence. That's our union with Christ as the bride of Christ. Now we're living in a created order of reproduction. And without it, we can feel a great loss. So should we marry? We who have never been married, the virgin growing up into the adulthood, the single person in that category. Well, Paul's advice and answer to that question occurs from verse 25 onwards in the third section of this chapter. Here he speaks in terms of the end of the world, in terms of the age to come, in which we are now participating. It comes in several forms. Firstly, there is the present, uh, verse 26, it's called impending, but I think present is what the Greek says. There is the present distress. Now we don't know what it is, but whatever it is, is part of a larger change coming upon the world. Because if you see down verse 29, he says the appointed time is growing short. And verse 30, the present form of this world is passing away. So I take it it's not some localised Corinthian problem, but he's saying the world's coming to an end. The way the world is, is coming to an end. So we don't look at the world 
As non-Christians look at the world, we have an end-of-the-world expectation which explains and anticipates troubles, the messianic woes as they're called. Before Christ returns, there will be persecution of Christians. I guarantee the Christians in what's called the Middle East which is really Southwest Asia, because it's a long way west of here. Why you call it the Middle East is because the British still rule the world and they determine what's east and west. But actually it's west, isn't it? The Southwest Asian Christians, Iran, Iraq, the people who are living in Palestine, the people who, those Christians who are living there, the Messianic woes are really great, aren't they? For though there's terrible bloodshed and awful civil wars taking place, the losers in every one of those places are those who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember them and uphold them in prayer. They're going through a terrible, terrible time at the moment as they are being really decimated from both sides. Not only them, but the Egyptian Christians and the ones all along North Africa are going through awful persecution. See, God says that before Christ comes, that's the kind of thing that is going to be happening. Secondly, there's the general command of verses 17 to 24 to remain. So if you're single, remain single. If married, remain married. He uses the words of binding and loosing, and not having been loosed, uh, divorced. But the ESV is right. It's a matter of, of binding and loosing. And thirdly, there is the concept of avoiding worldly troubles. For the married inevitably have to be concerned about the things of this world, especially in the times of persecution. So Jesus said in Mark 13, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Uh, it, it's, it's a very much more dangerous life if you have children. Very much more difficult. You look at the pictures of any of the refugee camps that are taking place. It's full of women with little children. They are the most vulnerable of peoples in the world. But it's, it's, men can be different. I had no fear of death as a young man. Most young men don't. That's why they put them in armies. <laughs> because they don't have enough brain power yet to have worked out the dangers that are involved. I had no fear of death. And I remember in my early 30s, one day waking up and being afraid of dying. And I thought, why? To live is Christ, to die is gain. What is my problem? Well, of course, in my early 30s, I was the father of three children. That was the problem. I couldn't take the risks that I took before because I had responsibilities in this world. And it was interesting that as my children left home, I regained my early stupidity. Because <laughs> though grandparents are very nice things to have around, they're not necessary. And I don't fear death anymore. It's just a phase I went through because I was married with those responsibilities. So, persecution now means great advantage for those who are single. Creation now is great advantage for those for being married. It's just differences, that's all. Fourthly, there is the issue of the undivided heart in verses 29 to 34. Given all this, Paul's advice is not to marry, not unless you're feeling you're doing the wrong thing by your virgin. That is, she's ageing and the time is passing and she needs to have the children that she wishes. But his advice is carefully qualified as his advice. It's not the rule of law, for to marry isn't a sin. It's just that you're living in this creation and will have to bear the burdens of this creation. And when you've already come to the age to come and could be taking up that life, living not for your spouse and your children but for the Lord himself, why not do that? But yet, if you have responsibility to your virgin, then fulfil your responsibility to her. We live in this world and the world to come at the same time. And that gives us varying choices and varying pressures and conflict. And so, in so doing, Paul is laying the foundation for those who will choose to remain single for the cause of the gospel. Just as there will be some who will choose to renounce their work and career for the cause of the gospel. But it has to do with the cause of the gospel. 
You see, just as we can be seduced by the created order into materialism or into individualism, for in part both are true, we live in a material world, there's nothing wrong with food and clothing and shelter, they're good things that God's provided for us. That's why they're so seductive. If they were totally wrong, they wouldn't be as seductive, would they? A good seduction requires a good coating of truth. The best lies are covered with truth. I don't want to tell you how to lie. You must say, don't need me to tell you, do you? But an out-and-out complete black lie has very little chance of working. But one that is substantially true has a great power in working. Well, the seduction of materialism is because it's profoundly true. We live in a material world where God has given us work to do so that we can provide for people and our family and the like. But you can get seduced into making that your meaning of life. Well, likewise, it's true. We've been created to have families. And it's a good and right and proper thing to do. And it's possible to get seduced into believing that is the meaning of your life. And so just as we can be seduced that way, so we can be seduced by the created order into marriage and family life instead of renouncing all as Jesus challenged us. So in Luke 14 we read, Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, that's a really rattle your cage kind of verse, isn't it? Hate is such a strong word. <laughs> but if your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ isn't so starkly different to your commitment to your family, you haven't got your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ right. You must hate. Even Martin Luther, he understood it. Martin Luther was a man of terrible danger. This is the end of his great hymn, O Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though they take our life, goods, honour, children, wife, yet is their profit small. The city of God, these things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. Remember, he was the man who actually had to hide for three years. He was the man that the Roman Empire of the day was against. He was the man the Pope was against. He was the man whose life for 40 years was in continued danger. That's what he wrote. You see, he believed in the city of God above the kingdoms of this world. And so he believed in the city of God above goods, honour, children, life. Because he believed what Jesus said, unless you hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. This is living as Paul commands here in verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. Not at all meaning go into an ascetic state of celibacy within marriage. He's denied that in the opening five verses of the chapter. Forbidding marriage is the work of demons. But sitting loosely to marriage to avoid the sin of mariolatry, where my life's meaning is found in it, for my life's meaning is not found there, but found in Christ and his marriage to his bride. And so I've set the scene for the last uh, section, the singleness and ministry. Uh, in the pastorals, elders are to be married manage their own households but that's not the ministry of the ordained bible teacher it seems to me but rather the professionally trained missionary they should really raise questions timothy titus sylvanus paul whose lives were better suited to singleness by the travels they went to he who travels alone travels fastest Least responsibilities. Now, I'm not arguing for celibacy like the Roman Catholic Church has and the vows of celibacy being demanded of people, etc. But I am saying that the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a more important thing than our marriages. Though if we do minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will marry properly and commit ourselves appropriately to our husbands and to our wives our husband and our wife, to be more accurate. And so the husband will still lay down his life for his bride as Christ laid down his life for his bride. 
He doesn't just desert his wife because of the ministry of the gospel, but the ministry of the gospel will be affected. Which ministries he can and cannot do, how much he can and cannot do, is greatly affected. That is, the choice of singleness is a real choice, a positive choice that some people will make. Some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, some become eunuchs for the cause of the kingdom. There is a choice to be made here. I'm not saying it's a choice everybody should make for a moment. But I am saying it's a choice that even our Christian community has left outside the door and forgotten about. But it's here in the scriptures. And we do need to pay attention to it. Because the choice of marriage is a choice of family. It's a choice of having children. A choice of independence and therefore responsibilities, which will then affect and influence what ministries of the gospel you can and can't do, what dangers and risks you have, what seductions you have about the nature of this world. But there is another route you can go, that is choose to be single. One of our problems with singleness in our society is people are not making choices. That's part of the problem, isn't it? Choose to be single and use it. If you don't choose to be single, either accept it and make the best of it or solve it by taking action. That's what you do. But don't grumble, don't complain. The world's not fair, never promised to be. It's a fallen world, sinful world. And, you know, you might complain about being single, but what about the bloke who's been made a eunuch? What are you complaining about? You know, I mean... There's all kinds of problems beyond this, isn't there? And do you want to be a slave? Well, Paul says, don't worry about it. If you are, it doesn't matter. You see, get the world in right perspective. Then you'll get singleness in the right perspective and marriage in the right perspective. But if you don't get the world in right perspective, marriage and singleness becomes everything. Massive, big problems or great joys that replace God both of which are wrong, both of which are big mistakes. Time has come. So I'm going to close in prayer, then we're going to sing, then we're going to leave. I think that's the options that we've got before us. No, 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 I was promised some, some, something to eat or drink, wasn't I? <laughs> Refreshments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you for the model of a husband that he is and for the reality of a husband that he is. We thank you that we can find our meaning, our purpose, our life that you have created for us in him and in the resurrection that we look forward to. Thank you, Father, for the revealing of yourself and us in your word so that we understand our place in this creation. Do, Father, so change our hearts that our treasures may be all laid up for us in heaven and our decisions in life be formed and framed by the heavenly citizenship to which you have called us. We pray, Father, for those of us who are struggling with this issue, for those who have lost their spouse in death and for the bitterness and horror of death and its pain, we do pray, Father, that you would help them in their grieving, but to live as if they're not. So those of us who have got the joys of married life and children, we thank you for them and for the privilege that we have to live out our created order in this fashion and pray that we may not be overburdened by the problems and difficulties of raising a family, nor so distracted by the joys and pleasures that we do not frame our family on your word and live our lives and lead our families to live our family life for the kingdom that lies ahead of us. And for those of us who are single through broken relationships or through the inability to have relationships, we do pray, Father, that you would take from us that feeling of bereft loneliness, assure us of your love for us and our, our value to be found in your Son and in the Gospel of Jesus. And help us to use 
the years we have when we do not have family responsibilities to serve you more fully and your people more fully and to take the opportunities of study and learning and growing and serving that they provide. Help us please, Father, to make wise choices, choices to marry or choices not to marry, in accordance with your word and your values, that we may live our lives in this world as you have created us to live it, and to live our lives in this world as citizens of the kingdom and the world to come. And we ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.